0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine NEJM Group. I'm Clem, a senior editorial fellow. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Abdullah Damluji, an interventional cardiologist at Anova Heart and Vascular Institute and associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's the first author on the American Heart Association's new scientific statement on the management of acute coronary syndromes in the older adult population. Dr. Damluji, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited about talking about our work and probably discuss with you the scientific statement from the American Heart Association on the management of acute coronary syndrome in older adults. Thank you again for inviting me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We like to give our listeners a peek into the process of how these statements or guidelines come about. So what was a process like writing this scientific statement for the AHA? And how might a scientific statement be different than a guideline, for example?
1: Yeah, so I work with the American Heart Association scientific committees, both the Interventional Cardiology Scientific Committee and the Acute Care Committee. And this scientific statement on older adults came about because there is some gray areas that are not addressed by the clinical practice guidelines because most clinical trials excluded older adults more than 75 years of age. We have clinical trials, smaller clinical trials that enrolled primarily all older adult populations. But a lot of the larger clinical trials that investigate the efficacy and safety of therapeutics, both drugs and devices, excluded older adults with complex geriatric conditions that can modify the effect of treatment including frailty, multimorbidity, polypharmacy, because these are very complex to deal with in a clinical trial setting.
0: Perfect. And with the population in America really aging every year, I think this is really timely and really helpful for our listeners. Speaking of which, we have listeners of all learning levels, so let's just bring it back to the fundamentals. And can you define acute coronary syndrome for us and tell us what different things, diseases, this term encompasses?
1: Yeah, so acute coronary syndrome refers to a group of diseases in which coronary blood flow to the heart is decreased as a result of plaque rupture or resulting in myocardial injury. And the spectrum of acute coronary syndrome extends from complete cessation of blood flow to one territory of the heart, leading to an ST elevation myocardial infarction, or to partial cessation or reestablishment of flow resulting in non-ST elevation myocardial infarction by surface EKG. Sometimes we can detect this injury to the heart muscle at an earlier stage where uh, enzymes in the blood are not yet apparent and that results in an unstable angina. A lot of symptoms at rest, mainly substernal chest pain as a result of cessation in blood flow and the absence of myocardial injury. In the era of high sensitivity troponin, this third group is becoming less and less in practice, although the European guidelines still highlight that unstable angina is, is a group that should be considered in practice.
0: Great, thanks for defining those for us. And how is the older adult defined in the document and what age cutoff was used and why was this chosen?
1: Yeah, so I said previously, clinical trials are systematically excluded older adults, more than 75 years of age, because of their geriatric complexities. In 2007, Dr. Alexander published that manuscript highlighting the lack of evidence in older adults, but the majority of older adults are affected by acute coronary syndrome. Since then, there have been a number of clinical trials that have tried to address the efficacy and safety of therapeutics in older adults. So this statement came in to synthesize the evidence. and to help practitioners and investigators address common issues that they face and practice in the management of older adults with acute coronary syndrome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it might be helpful for us all to review with you some of the cardiovascular changes that occur with aging. Can you just refresh our memory and remind us why is the older adult more vulnerable to certain things and what are some physiologic changes that might predispose them to the acute coronary syndromes?
1: Yeah, so older adults... In contrast to younger adults, uh, they get predisposed to cardiovascular physiologic changes that predispose them to have more complications from acute coronary syndromes. These include the presence of calcifications and increasing in collagen cross-linking in the vascular structure leading to increase in central aortic stiffness. There will be stiffness in the ventricle itself that can cause altered diastolic relaxation, and increasing myocardial stiffness. As a result, there is decreased responsiveness to beta-adrenergic stimulation. There are changes in the endothelial lining of the coronary vessels, leading to intrinsically increased risk of thrombosis over fibrinolysis. There is chronic low-grade inflammation, which what we call in practice, inflammaging. And these have all implications on patients with acute coronary syndromes. The increasing left ventricular and diastolic pressure and increasing central venous pressure can lead to heart failure symptoms and increased myocardial workload, oxygen demand, and decrease in coronary perfusion pressure, particularly when there is plaque rupture in the setting of acute coronary syndrome. There is increasing resistance to coronary perfusion predisposing older adults to conditions like atrial fibrillation or exacerbation of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. All of these physiologic complexity can lead to a really sicker profile of older adults when you compare them to a younger patient presenting with the same exact problem. But to just highlight the other complexity is there are other worsening in other systems outside the cardiovascular system, particularly the renal system and the influence of chronic kidney disease in older adults also predisposes older adults to more complications, particularly in the setting of acute on chronic kidney injury during ACS admissions.
0: Yeah, and we will go over some of those considerations when we discuss management as well. But thank you for highlighting all those really complex, challenging considerations for older adults, which makes, I think, this statement all the more salient. And really, I encourage readers who are interested to read through the statement because there's a wealth of information in there. You also mentioned before, Dr. Damluji, these complex geriatric conditions that these patients might have. So you made allusion to frailty and some of these other things that sort of these geriatric syndromes that might accompany these patients. Can you briefly go over them and how these might inform our management of ACS in these patients?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. These conditions do not fall into one category and they are difficult to address. And we, as cardiologists, wanna deal with problems in the cardiovascular system. But we are often faced with these geriatric conditions, and we treat a younger adult who have no geriatric risks the same as we treat older adults with multimorbidity, frailty, cognitive decline, delirium, Polypharmacy, disability, sensory loss, and other conditions that are more common at extremes of age. I'm gonna highlight a couple of these conditions for you. Um, and a lot of our listeners, including the practitioners and the clinicians, they're faced every day with these problems. These include multimorbidity, for example, the presence of two chronic conditions, both cardiac and non-cardiac. The prevalence is quite high. As you can see in practice, most older adults have more than two chronic conditions on top of their acute coronary syndromes when they present to the hospital. A lot of them present with five and sometimes 10 chronic uh, conditions. As a result, these conditions are managed with medications, and these medications can exceed five medications, which in a condition called polypharmacy, and sometimes more than 10 medications in one patient. I'm sure that you've seen a lot of patients in practice on 10 or 15 medications. This is hyperpolypharmacy. And when you come in with acute coronary syndrome and we apply guideline-directed medical therapy on these patients and adding dual antiplatelet therapy, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, statins, we even increase that complexity of polypharmacy. These can lead to acute cognitive impairments as a result of interactions of multiple medications disease-drug interaction, drug-drug interaction leading to delirium, and particularly important in patients who have pre-underlying cognitive impairments. Those who are frail, it's a state of vulnerability to stressors resulting from diminished physiologic reserves across multiple physiologic systems. And these patients, because they have underlying frailty, now they come in with acute coronary symptoms. They are immobilized. In the bed for three or four days, they go to cardiac rehab after they don't resume the same physical activities that they were having prior to their acute coronary insult, and that leads to worsening frailty status and physical function. So all of these conditions modify our approach to treatment to acute coronary syndromes, and the understanding of these conditions in the guideline is really lacking. And I think the next phase of clinical investigation should focus on studying these conditions in the context of acute coronary syndromes and really in the context of cardiovascular disease in general.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. It's evident that it's very complex and there are so many different factors to consider when taking care of these patients. So thank you for setting that groundwork and we're going to move on to just thinking about diagnosis specifically in these patients, how to diagnose acute coronary syndrome when these patients present, what are some considerations in how the older adult might experience the symptoms of ACS differently than their younger peers?
1: So for a younger patients, they come in with substernal chest pain, at rest, radiating to the left arm, maybe relieved by nitroglycerin or other vasodilators, but that only happens about 40 to 60% in an older adult population. majority of older adults, as I said, they live with chronic conditions, lung disease. They live with hypertensive heart disease. Sometimes they have conduction disease. And on top of that, they come in with acute coronary insult or acute coronary syndrome. So their presentation is quite different. Some older adults can come in with nausea, with shortness of breath, with syncope, with sudden confusion or change in mental status. So we have to use other diagnostic tests to try to figure out what is type 1 am i what is type 2 am i and who are those patients who really are confounded by other chronic comorbidities and make us think that they have acute coronary syndromes but they do not so the diagnostics is a little bit challenging but we have to rely on other imaging modalities and biomarkers to try to understand whether the patient is having acute coronary syndrome or not
0: yes absolutely and speaking of these diagnostics, let's speak a little bit about troponins. So why might they use the usage tr- of troponins in the older adult not be very straightforward?
1: Troponins is really the cornerstone of trying to understand whether someone is having acute coronary event or not. There is this uh, characteristic rise and fall uh, of cardiac enzymes. So we do need a serial troponin to try to understand whether the patient is likely having a decrease in their coronary perfusion, secondary to a primary insult, plaque rupture or not. Now, this also introduces challenges, particularly in the high sensitivity troponin era. Now we can detect really small differences in the rise of these troponins. And whether this is acute coronary syndrome in an older adult with multiple chronic conditions, with hemodynamic changes that are different than younger adults, this becomes a little bit challenging. We have to consider chronic diseases like Chronic kidney disease, by the way, hypertensive heart disease, those who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, these can by itself result in a minor elevation in high sensitivity troponins. So, the combination of presentation plus the imaging modalities, particularly the ECG, can help us decide whether someone is having a primary event or not.
0: You mentioned the ECG. So how might the ECG interpretation be challenging in this population, for example, because you had mentioned conduction disease in these patients?
1: Well, a lot of these patients, they either had prior surgeries, mainly cardiac surgeries, or they have underlying conduction disease, like right bundle branch blocks, left bundle branch blocks. Sometimes they have a pacemaker because of underlying rhythm problems or sick sinus syndrome or complete heart block. And they have a dual-chamber dual, pace, dual chamber pacemaker, so they are kind of paced. That makes the interpretation of the data from the EKG a little bit more challenging. So these ECG problems can confound our diagnostic approach. And that's why we have to look at all the data in, in aggregate. You look at their symptomatology and their change from baseline. You look at the data from the EKG correlated with biomarkers. And that will give us some sense of a risk assessment strategy to see if the patients have high likelihood of having an acute coronary event or not. And that's what we refer to in the document as a holistic approach to management rather than a disease-centered approach. If you think about acute coronary syndrome, we think about certain criteria, the typical substernal chest pain, rise and fall of biomarkers and cardiac enzymes. A typical ECG findings like Q wave MI's or ST elevation myocardial infarction, and there and there is a clear track of management. And older adults, these patients have a lot of confounders to management. They have these geriatric conditions. They have really atypical presentation, and they have they are on a lot of drugs that can also cause complications during hospital admission. As a result, you know a holistic approach to care is much better than a disease-centered approach.
0: Now, let's transition to management of these patients. So let's say we agree or we diagnose acute coronary syndrome, and in a younger patient, we think that this patient would be a candidate for PCI or percutaneous coronary intervention. What are some special considerations for PCI in older adults?
1: So the most robust evidence that we have, clinical trial evidence, that PCI, and reestablishment of coronary blood flow would work is in the STEMI population. So older adults who present with STEMI should go to the cath lab for early invasive approach to management and percutaneous coronary intervention to reestablish coronary blood flow. Now for patients with non-STEMI and unstable angina, the evidence is less robust compared to younger adults. There are approximately seven clinical trials that only enrolled older adults above 75 years of age or 80 years of age, depending on the trial you look at. There is the Italian Elderly ACS trial. There is the After 80 trial, MOSCA, MOSCA Frail, and uh, two other European trials. All of them have very small sample sizes. We're talking anywhere between 150 to 500 Patients enrolled. As compared to younger cohorts, they are in thousands. So the majority of these trials did not show benefit, but their sample sizes are quite small. The uh, after 80 was the largest trial. It enrolled 457 non STEMI patients that are above 80 years of age. And the primary outcome was reduction in death. Reinfarction or urgent revascularization at 18 months after presentation. And in that trial, early invasive therapy and reestablishment of blood flow and the non STEMI cohort showed benefit over conservative therapy with a hazard ratio of 0. 0.53 and a significant p value. At a 95 confidence interval was 0.41 to 0.69. There is a very large European trial now that will be enrolling older adults, and they will be measuring geriatric syndromes across the board. And this trial is funded by the British Heart Foundation. So we will await that trial. The sample size is close to two thousand patients. I think seventeen or eighteen hundred, and led of one of our co-authors on the statement, and hopefully we'll have some insight about the management of non-STEMI. Now, from the prospective cohort size, prospective cohort studies that are non-randomized, PCI was associated with improved mortality, improved in symptomatology and quality of life, but again, there is a lot of bias, selection bias in these patients. As you can see, like, you know, you're a clinician, I'm a clinician, when we go to the ER and see patients, we're gonna select the best patients, those who have no frailty, no dementia, no multiple chronic conditions. And then these patients will do best with early invasive therapy. Those who have higher burden of geriatric syndromes have probably more difficulty in establishment of efficacy of treatment and also safety because early invasive therapy is associated with higher risks like including bleeding, delirium, acute cognitive impairment in the hospital, And hemodynamic changes and probably death when complications are encountered.
0: Thank you for that detailed dive into the evidence that we have and the ongoing trials that that might give us more data to inform our future decisions. Dr. Damluji, what about cabbage? Do older patients benefit from that? And how does the data for cabbage differ from our data for PCI in older adults?
1: Again, for cabbage, there is some selection bias. Like PCI, those who are selected for surgical revascularization are normally healthier. They have less frailty, less geriatric burden. They are not demented. So these patients do very well if they are selected for cabbage, particularly those who have left main disease, revasal disease, or they have extensive coronary disease with high syntax scores. Now, those who are selected, as I said, are normally healthier than those who are not selected for coronary artery bypass grafting. I mean, we really need more evidence in the cabbage space. Now, the introduction of minimally invasive surgical revascularization with probably a robotic Lima to an LAD combined with follow-up PCI may be an option for all these older adults with higher burden of geriatric syndromes. So we still don't know that. This is not evidence-based, on trial evidence-based, but I think there is a lot of role in hybrid, revascularization in older adults with higher burden of geriatric syndromes.
0: Mm-hmm. And Dr. Demluji, when these patients are undergoing a procedure, if they had come in DNR or DNI, what is usually done about these orders during the procedure?
1: So This is a very challenging um, question, particularly in those who have baseline cognitive impairment in acute situations. We advocated in the document that a patient's advocate, and a family member should be present to make some of these decisions regarding their code status. We suggested reversal of their DNR status if they are going for any invasive diagnostic approach and possible percutaneous revascularization. And that's in the short term. For those who have really higher burdens of geriatric syndromes, that's where we advocated for the presence of a geriatrician or a palliative care doctor to probably help bridge the gap between the patient's expectations and the clinician's expectations in terms of invasive care. Just to give you an example, if you find an older adult with advanced forms of cognitive impairments, it's probably best not to uh, rush them to the cath lab and expose them to an invasive intervention if issues related to compliance with medications, short or long-term complications related to procedures are encountered without a proper discussion with all stakeholders, including their family that's taking care of them.
0: Yeah, I think that stresses the importance of having all the right people involved. And again, going back to considering the patient as a whole and thinking about all the pieces of the puzzle. So th- thanks for highlighting that. So for patients who are requiring antiplatelet therapy, is there an ideal antiplatelet for the older adult and can comment a little bit about the different antiplatelets.
1: Yeah. So we reviewed the evidence in the document and the evidence is slightly in favor of the use of clopidogrel in older adults. Um, and this is based on uh, meta-analyses that aggregated data from comparisons between clopidogrel and between ticagrelor. Clearly, prasugrel there is a black box warning about bleeding for older adults above 75 years of age. So that's gone. But the question is whether clopidogrel versus ticagrelor. For most patients undergoing simple PCI, I think clopidogrel has the same efficacy in terms of reduction in reinfarction rates, instant thrombosis, compared to ticagrelor, but they have a lower bleeding profile than ticagrelor. Also, there's some benefits regarding compliance. It's a once-a-day drug and the short and intermediate term compared to ticagrelor, which is a twice-a-day drug, which may introduce problems with compliance, particularly in older adults with some forms of cognitive impairments or disability. Ticagrelor, in some studies, increased the risk of bleeding. Now, in patients who have complex coronary disease and those who have left main disease or really long stents, probably ticagrelor can be used. So we advocated for more complex work for ticagrelor, but for most patients, I think clopidogrel is associated with lower risk of bleeding.
0: Great you did mention that a lot of older adults often have concurrent atrial fibrillation. So how should we manage these patients and how might their atrial fibrillation complicate drug therapy?
1: We also went with the American Heart Association scientific statements on antiplatelet therapy, and we advocated for a P2Y12 inhibitor plus a NOAC in those who can tolerate systemic anticoagulation therapy rather than triple therapy because older adults are at risk for bleeding events in the short term and in the intermediate terms. Now, for those who have really complex work, really bifurcation lesions and proximal segments of coronary vessels, left main, LAD, CERC, and those who have really like extensive disease that requires extensive stenting, and they do at the same time have atrial fibrillation, triple therapy can be considered for a short period of time, four weeks. And then this can be transitioned to NOAC and clopidogrel thereafter. In in those who have, who they need triple therapy, we also advocated for clopidogrel over Brilenta because of the increased risk of bleeding with triple therapy. So in a nutshell, clopidogrel plus a NOAC for those who require a systemic anticoagulation is a primary prevention for uh, embolic events.
0: Great. And now moving on to the final phase of the management of ACS. When we're thinking about discharge, should we refer older adults to cardiac rehabilitation? And are there any considerations or special modifications that we need to make for rehab for these patients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is very, very important. And the crux of the paper is cardiac rehab. Cardiac rehab is a platform that will help all patients presenting with acute coronary syndromes and other cardiovascular, unstable cardiovascular conditions. But particularly for older adults who live with several geriatric syndromes, and the way to address them in the short and intermediate term, I think cardiac rehab can provide the resources to addressing physical frailty, cognitive dysfunction, medication compliance, and other forms of uh, rehabilitations, physical and non-physical. And cardiac rehab not only improves physical health, but also improves quality of life for post-acute coronary syndromes. Actually, recently, there is the Really important trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Rehab HF trial, that basically utilized cardiac rehab in the introduction of a multifaceted intervention for improving physical function in patients with heart failure. So, cardiac rehab is important. Cardiac rehab should be done to all patients who present to the hospital with acute coronary syndromes, particularly older adults, because they're the most vulnerable. And
0: there is Mounting evidence that I'm sure you're aware that cardiac rehab is underutilized, so perhaps it is better to err on the side of over-referring these patients and seeing if we can help them with their rehab and seeing if they can make modifications to sort of squeeze all sorts of patients in. So given the medical comorbidities and polypharmacy that's present in many of these patients, we know that discharge is a time where many errors can occur. So what can we as hospitalists or primary care physicians do to minimize these errors?
1: That's where we come to transitions of care. That is, the involvement of a team rather than a one person in the care of older adults is really crucial. There should be a cardiologist, a geriatrician that can help the hospitalist and the primary care provider in the hospital setting to transition these patients appropriately to the outpatient setting, including cardiac rehab. So this is not a hospitalist job. It's way more complex than just ticking boxes. The presence of a geriatric pharmacist would help ensure that the medications the patient is on does not cause more medication, drug-drug interactions or drug-disease interactions. The cardiologist would ensure that the doses of the medications that are needed for these patients are appropriate for secondary prevention. A geriatrician will address goals of care. So it's actually a holistic approach to management is what we advocate for as the patient transition to the outpatient setting. And it's really an important point in making sure that patients are cared for in a continuous fashion and prevent readmission after an acute event. Just to close is the Medicare now is advocating for age-friendly institutes. Age-friendly institutes include all these aspects of care, the involvement of a geriatrician, an involvement of a cardiologist, and the help of a, a primary hospitalist or a primary provider of medical care who can bridge the gaps across these aspects of care.
0: Great. And Dr. Dem, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: I'm very grateful for the New England Journal of Medicine to allow us to expose this important statement from the American Heart Association. And grateful to you for taking the time to discuss this statement and the evidence in the field. I would hope that in the future, there will be more trials that enroll older adults with different levels of geriatric syndromes. This is what we need in practice. And this is what we need to advance cardiovascular care in the next level.
0: Absolutely. And I think this unmet need is also one of the reasons we wanted to highlight this particular statement. Well, this ends this episode of Curbside Consults, I'd like to thank Abdullah Demluji for joining us today to discuss the American Heart Association's new scientific statement on the management of acute coronary syndromes in the older adult population. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamdick. Herbside Consults is brought to you by NJM Resident 360, a product of NJM Group.